This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. As parents, we often marvel at how differently each of our children operates. One of them might learn quickly and forget quickly, while another one learns slowly and forgets slowly. One child might be hyperactive, while another is slow-moving, and one may fall asleep quickly, only to awake in the night, while another one takes hours to fall asleep and then stays that way for more hours. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about the intersection between neuroscience and parenting, in a way, and we're going to be focusing on how a single thing, a unique body-brain type, can actually explain some of these differences between children. And we'll also see how an understanding of that brain-body type can actually help us as parents better understand our kids and our kids' natural inclinations and their corresponding strengths and weaknesses. The result there is that we're going to be better parents for it. Once we figure out which brain-body type our child is, we're going to be able to figure out which routines to follow, which meals to prepare, which discipline approaches to pursue for each child at every stage of development. And of course, equally important is our own assessment of our own brain-body type, which also will allow us to address our own unique needs and better understand the dynamics of our relationships with our children. So what's your brain-body type? We'll find out when Positive Parenting continues right after this. People have all kinds of excuses for not saving energy. I'll turn it off later so we don't have those Energy Star appliances. Well, maybe it's time to stop making excuses and save the energy and resources we can. You just never know what people will need in the future. We can all help save more energy for tomorrow. What's your excuse? For more energy-saving tips that also save money, visit loseyourexcuse.gov parents. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Ad Council, and this station. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guests for this part of today's show are Frederick Travis and Robert Keith Wallace, who are the co-authors of Dharma Parenting, Understanding Your Child's Brilliant Brain for Greater Happiness, Health, Success, and Fulfillment. Right now, we've just got Frederick Travis on the phone, but Robert will be joining us fairly soon. Uh, Thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about the whole concept of Dharma parenting, and it's it's not about meditation. This is more about the Ayurvedic approach, which I think people are much less familiar with than than other alternative medicines. So give us a little bit of background on the Ayurvedic approach generally, and then we'll hone in on the parenting part. Excellent. Um, first, a larger picture. Uh, what's the purpose of parenting? Is it to uh, control your kids, to impress what you think is right on them, um, if you do that, parenting becomes a tug of war, a war of wits. Dharma parenting suggests that the purpose of parenting is to discover the talents, the preferences, the tendencies of your children, to discuss and discover um, their, their path in life. All of these ideas, your tendencies, your preference, your path in life, are part of an Eastern concept called Dharma. And so Dharma parenting suggests discover the Dharma of your child, and develop that. And to do that, we use uh, knowledge from Ayurveda, and this is really the essence of your question. 
And Ayurveda um, has studied individuals and found that mental thinking, um, activity, how you respond to food, how you respond to the environment, that people fall into different types. These are called body types. And this is what Dharma Parenting does. Good. Keith is just arrived. This is what Dharma Parenting does. It gives you six tools, and the first tool is to discover your own and your child's brain body type. Because what that does, it allows you to anticipate what, how they're going to respond in different instances. If, you're, if you skip a meal, you know that one of the body types is, is just going to get angry and irritable. They just will blow up. Others will not. Okay. So how do we determine even where to begin with this? I mean, they, they said there, there's going to be body types and brain types, and then there's the combination of the two, right? <laughs> Correct. Want me to jump in here? Um, absolutely. So, yes, you're absolutely right. The easiest way to start is uh, we have a quiz, which you can do online or in the book, um, and you can find out right away what your brain body type is and what your child's brain body type is. And, of course, then, you know, you already know the age of your child, so that's pretty straightforward. Uh, the book is divided into four sections for each age group, so we give a lot of examples um, you know, if you're a particular body type, what to do at that age. So the book is completely organized in a how-to fashion so that you can easily find out your brain body type and easily find out all the things you need to do at a particular age. Okay. All right. So just so people can follow along, why don't you give me a few of the of the questions so I can do the quiz with you and, and will use me as a test subject here. Absolutely. So, like, the first question is, you know, it's a... Weather aside, what best describes your temperature? And then it shows pictures of three different people, uh, one a guy with a fan in front of it, and he's saying, so hot. I get hot quickly. I'm usually the first to open the window. And then the next below that is a woman freezing. She's you know, shivering. Freezing. I'm always chilly, especially my hands and feet. I'm usually the first to turn the heat up. And finally, at the bottom, um, there's one with a bunch of a whole family sitting in the snow, mostly indifferent. I like cold and I like heat. So, you know, what do you find when you're? Are, do you get hot too quickly, or do you get? Cold? Yeah, I'm I'm overheated quite often. Yeah. Okay, well, we can almost tell your body type right from there. At least physically, <laughs> you're what we call a pit of body type. You've got a lot of fire. Um, you're very dynamic, very precise, probably a good athlete, need to have your meals on time. Uh, you might be slight, thin or slightly balding. I mean, there's all kinds of interesting characteristics we can go into, whether we go into what describes your skin, your body frame. Um, there's, you know, a whole bunch of different questions, some on digestion, um, some on your emotions, like are you a person that might get uh, lose your temper if, if you don't eat on time or you get overheated? I probably get a little irritable, but that but at the same time I will sometimes just forget to eat and and. Okay, yeah. so now that tells us a little more because nobody usually is one type only. Usually they're a combination. So you're th these you're just telling me right now that you're probably. Pitta, kapha. Now, the kapha type is a little solid, more solidly built, a little more easygoing, not quite so fiery, more earthy. And they don't have to eat um, on time. They are a little 
they have the ability to skip a meal and not have a problem. So these combinations are really probably more accurate, um, but we just have focused on the main types just to give an idea. Now, sure, this, sure. this all comes from a very beautiful ancient system called Ayurveda, which has been there for thousands of years, and modern science is now just discovering it. They looked, for example, at these different types and did a genetic analysis, looking at which genes are turned on and which genes are turned off, and they find that they can make a correlation. So there is a real serious scientific basis to these brain-body types, and Dr. Travis and myself have written a paper you know, specifically talking about how the brain operates and what kind of circuits in the brain um, could be there to explain this ancient system. Okay, so the idea is that parents would go through this and they would answer the questions about their children and then answer the questions about themselves and then hopefully come up with something that is going to put yeah, the, put I them mean, into some into a category that they will be easier to adapt behavior to. Yeah. For example, if you're say like a pitta dad, you know, meaning you've got a lot of fire, you're gold oriented, a strong athlete, and you have a vata kid who's uh, vata is a little more sensitive, thinner frame, a very creative, very imaginative, but not with the and you know has a lot of good bursts of energy, but it's not uh, necessarily the one that's going to be on the football team. And so you as a Pitta dad have to be aware of your Vata kid. You have to make adjustments in your own style of parenting that you don't have the same expectations for your child as for yourself. And so that's a huge thing is this how to work together to get the best results as a parent by really appreciating and understanding your kid's strengths and weaknesses and how they compare with yours. Now, do you worry? Uh, do you worry about that? This is is making something that's really incredibly complex a little bit too simple. Um, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I think the reality is that most parents know this anyway. I mean, a good parent, you know, say you have a mom and she's just been a you know star tennis player and she's powerful, and she has a kid you know that's a little more artistic. She knows right away that kid's not meant to be on the tennis team. But it's nice for her to see it and to confirm it through a test. And it's good for her to kind of just know what she already knows intuitively. It is, actually isn't very complicated. It's mostly just reinforcing what good parents know already. And it's simple because it's, it's very basic, profound knowledge. And so what it does is empowers the parent to begin to understand why one of their children wants to run out of the house without getting their coat on, it's the middle of winter, and the other um, child wants to bundle up three or four times. The other child doesn't, it takes 10 or 15 minutes to get out. And so what it does, it empowers them to understand differences in their children, and especially it understands that it's okay that their children are different. It understands that people have different preferences and tendencies, and so it, it empowers the parent, and it lets them understand how to deal with their children. Yeah, because it seems that the biggest area is going to be the conflict between the two. I think you know, having an understanding of yourself is certainly an important thing, but and also of your child. But to see how the two intersect is really what's the where the the fascinating part of this comes in. Great insight, and we actually have a, a table in the book where you can see what are the different uh, 
temperature, in terms of the environment, food, activity, how you think. You rate yourself, and then you can rate your children, and you rate your husband, and you can begin to see the patterns, and you begin to see where the possible conflicts can be. And the key thing here is, is whether you're in balance or not. Each type has a kind of an ideal level where their physiology and psychology is working well and where their best qualities are coming out. But right. now if you get out of balance, like a pitta type, can get irritable or angry. And, you know, that's important to know when you're in balance or out of balance. Um, you don't necessarily want to kind of give your kid try to give them advice, you know, when you're in that irritable state, you know, which is common sense, but it's nice sure. to be able to see it. Yeah. It's also to ha good to have a few uh, tools and tricks to be able to get yourself back in balance. And so, you know, if you've, if you've been out mowing the lawn and you're really hot and your kid does something wrong, you, you might need to take a cold shower or have a cold <laughs> Okay. Just to cool down the heat before you go in and try to, you know, Right. Help your kid solve some problem. Talking with Robert Keith Wallace and Frederick Travis, who are the co-authors of Dharma Parenting, Understand Your Child's Brilliant Brain for Greater Happiness, Health, Success, and Fulfillment. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Robert Keith Wallace and Frederick Travis. I'm Dr. Carolyn Clancy, Director of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Prescriptions are an important way to treat medical conditions. You need to know why you're taking a prescription and if it could interact with other medicines, vitamins, or food. Know the name of the medicine, when to take it, and if you'll need refills. If you don't understand the instructions, ask your doctor or pharmacist to help. Taking an active role in your health care is essential to keeping yourself safe and healthy. To learn more, visit ahrq.gov. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Robert Keith Wallace and Frederick Travis, who are the co-authors of Dharma Parenting, Understand Your Child's Brilliant Brain for Greater Happiness, Health, Success, and Fulfillment. Um, I want to have you talk a little bit about something, because this is a topic that's that's come up in, in different kind of configurations, and one of them is just the concept of temperament. And I remember when I first started reading about temperament, probably 20 years ago now, uh, it was... A, a real revelation that it it helped me to understand that oh you know that's so I'm I'm really not the only person who can't stand to be around crowds of people I don't know or who has different issues in different places and and it it makes you comfortable with yourself a little bit anyway or or less uncomfortable perhaps you see that there's a a connection there or is is this the the ayurvedic way of of naming temperamental characteristics or is this something in, in a parallel world um it's the same essential point what ayurveda does it expands it it's not only to your emotions it's also to the food you eat it's also to the behaviors that you can do most easily it's also how you function in the environment it's also how you deal with stress and so on so it gives a very big picture and what we do with brain body types is we add one more thing, and that is the brain is constantly changing from birth to age 25. So the brain of a three-year-old, they'll be expressing their temperament in a specific way. It's very simple. It has to do with sensory objects. It 
uh, they can't actually reflect or think about what they're doing. They don't have much of a mental world. And that extends up to the teenagers, where they're starting to think about thinking. And so they're constantly asking questions. And they're constantly questioning anything you tell them, they'll find a counterexample. You know, why is this happening? It's just because those brain circuits are developing. And so their temperament is going to be expressed in a different way. So what we've done is we've taken the knowledge of the full range of body types from Ayurveda. We combined it with the understanding of brain development from neuroscience. And that's the insights that you give in brain body types. And do you find that they are generally consistent throughout life? Or do they do they change at various points? Because it seems like temperament is something that I think a lot of parents would say, you know, I knew from the time this kid was three days old that he was going to be screaming and yelling every time the lights came on, or I knew that this kid was some was incredibly calm or, you know, slow to warm is one of the things, somebody who takes a while to get used to new situations and people. Yeah, and those, exactly. those things tend to remain constant over life. Absolutely. They totally remain constant. And, you know, one kid is eating really fast, the other kid is eating slow. They don't stop that, you know, and they did it from, you know, day one, and they do it all the way through life. So, yes, you're right. These are these are just like brain circuits. They're kind of the way the brain is wired, and, um, you know, whatever that genetic predisposition is there. But, of course, the environment changes it. A kid that loses his temper at a young age can learn certain very simple things to keep himself in better balance. And so as he grows older, he can learn how to maintain his temper, not to lose his temper. And the parent is the best coach he can have to, to ensure that he learns the right things to do. So even though those tendencies go through life, we can certainly improve them. And that's the key concept here. We don't want to sort of categorize anybody and put them in a box. We want everybody to know that they can grow to be the maximum that they possibly can. And it's just a matter, and parents have a huge, huge influence just by giving kids tools that mm -hmm. help them become more self-aware, self-reflective, so they can, you know, coach themselves. Now, let's give a, a little bit of a, an example here. We've got not in the too distant future the first day of school coming back up. And so give us a couple of examples of, of brain-body types and how parents might work with a child of a particular brain-body type to ease the, some of the stresses and, and transitions of first day of school. Well, if the child is pitta-body type, that's uh, characterized by very strong intellect. They'll be raring to go to school. They may even be getting books and reading before school begins. Uh, the Vata type is also very excited about school, but it's, um, it's less consistent. What you'll want to do is set a routine for the, the Vata body type. Okay, so now we're going to be getting our notebooks, and, and you might even take your children to school. Okay, this is what it's going to look like when you go to school. The Kapha body type, they're, just, uh, they're the ones who are steady, who are sturdy, and they're pretty, take it very easy, um, but it's harder to get them going. Yeah, I mean, you really want to, you know, take, uh, get them up a little earlier, know that they're going to be a little slower to get dressed, they're going to be a little slower with their breakfast. So you just got to give extra time for those. And if there's some new change in the school, you got to prepare them for it. I mean, these are just really simple things, but boy, they make a huge difference. And the key point here is just to go back to the previous question. The tendencies are there because that's how the physiology is structured, and that's how they grow and become 
strongest and most successful in life. So you shouldn't try to change them, but rather you should discover their preferences and their tendencies, recognize them, and help the child to work with them to be the, the most successful person they can. Right. I, th- I think that's a, a really important point. I mean, no, you don't want to change things, particularly something that seems to be so embedded in, in the child to begin with, but it's important to understand that there may be better or worse ways of of incorporating your particular body type or body brain type into your, your life, that you may need to make some changes to make life smoother for yourself. And that's the key point, and having the body type is the blueprint. Now you can understand why you get angry when you eat, uh, for instance, I'm Pitta, and I ate a, a Reuben with sauerkraut and cheese and walked across the quad in the middle of the summer, and I sat in class, and I was just angry at everyone. <laughs> and, <laughs> and if you know your body type, you know that that's two things you don't want to do. So it really helps you organize your life. It Wait, which you. which two things, the cheese and the... Uh, and the sauerkraut and walking in the hot sun without a, a hat. All right, so why would you do that, particularly some, somebody who knows as much about this as you do? Well, this, this is, I'm glad you brought this up. This is when I was a student, and this knowledge was just coming out. And this was revelation for me. It allowed me to understand why I was reacting in a specific way. Before you think, I'm not myself. Why am I acting this way? And what you have with the, with the body types is you have a roadmap to understand why you respond. You can understand why your friend's responding that way. You can understand why your children, why your spouse is responding in a different way. Okay. And so let, let me let me take another example of a particular type of behavior that that I think you know could could possibly cause some conflict. So, you know, you you mentioned somebody like a, a mom who's on the tennis team and a child who's not that terribly interested in sports, but. You know, we, we still, at the same time, okay, fine, we understand the child's going to be more of an artist, but, you know, God, you got to get up, you got to get off your tail and and do something. You turn off the your, your cell phone, put down the tablet, whatever it is. How do you get a child who is having some trouble with that? Well, actually, technology has made it really easy these days. You just give them a Pokemon phone and they'll go, they'll go wild. These kids actually... A lot of kids like to move. It's it's the it's they are they are the artists, but they actually like to move. It's just that they can get tired a little easier, and they don't have quite the same physical framework. But um, you know, you give them some game or something to do, and they they'll be very enthusiastic. It's actually the kapha kids that are the couch potatoes who, you know, when they're not feeling good or when they're a little you know just get a little resistant to moving. They just need a little nudge, so yeah. they just need, you know, the mom or dad to kind of come on, let's go for a bike ride, let's do this, you know, just to get them moving, and they really thrive on physical activity. It's, it, you know, actually they're some of the very best athletes because they have kind of both fire and they have earth, so they've got this kind of real strength and they have energy, um, but they, you know, they do take, uh, you do have to be not let them on those video games all the time. You've got right. some, some, you know, some boundaries there, very clear boundaries. And yeah. if you don't well, have those boundaries, uh, it's not good for them. They'll get into trouble. Well, it seems like in some ways because that you're talking about the technology can overcome the body type, that even if you have a, a child who's up and active, that there's something like a vortex that's dragging kids into this 
sitting around, hang, you know, spending so much time on their phone. Yeah, so there's two tools we offer for this. One is set up routines. And routines can be, okay, um, on Sundays the whole family goes for a walk. And with that set up, it gets everyone going. Another tool which is so important is attention and appreciation. Um, if your child's on a video game, sit down and see what video game they're doing. They may actually be exercising cognitive executive functioning during the video game. And so um, by attention and appreciation, you can begin to see what is the child doing, and then you can begin to speak with them. And then, because I think every child wants to please their parent, especially in the beginning 10, 15 years, 10 years of life. Right. All right. Thank you very much. It's Robert Keith Wallace and Frederick Travers, who are the co-authors of Dharma Parenting, Understand Your Child's Brilliant Brain for Greater Happiness, Health, Success, and Fulfillment. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Did you know 26 million Americans have kidney disease and most don't know it? The day I was diagnosed, I didn't know what to do. I called the National Kidney Foundation, and the young lady who answered stayed on the phone with me and walked me through step by step. She, too, was surviving kidney disease. and She showed me there could be life after kidney disease. Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. It's time for a Parents at Play segment. You know, there's something almost primal about building robots. Maybe it's the chance to create something that moves and doesn't need its diaper changed. Or maybe it's the challenge of building something that will make your life easier. Whatever the reason, building and playing with robots is a wonderful way to spend time with your kids and to build strong relationships. Here are some of our favorites. Kamigami from Dash Robotics. Kamigami are app-controlled robots you build and program. Start with putting together the robot's body by folding a flat sheet of thin cardboard. That's the igami in the name, as in origami. The robot's inside snap together without tools. Kamigami look like giant hex bugs, and once they're built, you control them with a free app. They play nicely with others, and they're practically indestructible. You race them, play laser tag, or just have them run around and smack into things. We especially love that there's zero intimidation factor here. Lots of other programmable robots can be overwhelming, but you don't need to be a techie or a coding expert to get your Kamigami up and running. They're for ages 6 and up. Costs about 99 bucks. KamigamiRobots.com Circuit Scribe Maker Kit from Electronics. Circuit boards are at the heart of just about everything in our life, but they're incredibly tiny, which means it's nearly impossible to see all the connections and how they're made. CircuitScribe changes all that by allowing you to physically draw your own circuits. The Maker Kit comes with 11 magnetic circuit board modules, a battery, and a handful of small components. But what makes this kit especially unique is the special ballpoint-type pen that draws with highly conductive and non-toxic silver ink, which allows you to draw circuits on just about anything. You can build simple switches that turn a light on or off, as well as more complex ones that involve touch sensors, timers, and more. But whatever you're building, you'll have a blast. 
They are for ages 8 and up. Cost under 80 bucks, and you can get it at electroninks.com. Dash from Make Wonder. Dash brings the wonderful world of robotics to the kindergarten set. Dash is different than many other robots in that you aren't actually building him. He's ready to roll and talk right out of the box after you charge him, of course. What makes this guy so appealing to kids and adults is that you use an iOS or Android device to control him. The simplest app allows you to move Dash's head, turn lights on and off, move him around the room, and a bit more. The apps get increasingly more complex, even allowing for drag-and-drop programming. Using the app, you string together commands like go forward, turn left, flash your eyes, turn right, dance when I clap, and so on, to create surprisingly sophisticated routines that are beyond the capabilities of little ones, but which will keep big kids as old as 12 fully engaged. For ages 5 to 12, under 150 bucks at makewonder.com. Vex Robotic Arm from Hexbug. The first thing to know about this robotic arm from Hexbug, which is the makers of those adorable frenetic mechanical insects, is that it's not a true robot in the it-moves-all-by-itself sense. Second, with more than 350 pieces, building it is going to take some time. But none of that detracts in any way from the product. If you want to automate your arm, you can buy a motor kit separately, and you and your children will have an absolutely amazing time working together to build your arm. Once it's done you'll have an even more amazing time using it, mechanically or motorized, to pick stuff up and move it around. It comes with easy-to-follow instructions for the arm, a scorpion, and a helicopter. It's for ages 8 and up, costs under 50 bucks. Hexbugvex.com You can get more reviews of wonderful toys and games and activities to do with your kids at parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another Parents at Play segment or an Ask Mr. Dad segment, depending on which week it is. But, as you know, don't go anywhere quite yet because there's a lot more positive parenting coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. In 1977, in Johannesburg, South Africa, an eight-year-old boy picked up the game of golf from his father. By the age of nine, he was already outplaying him. The odds of that same boy then making it to the U.S. and European pro golf tours? One in seven million. The odds of the Big Easy winning the Open Championship once and the U.S. Open Championship twice one in 780 million. The odds of this professional golfer having a child diagnosed with autism? One in 110. Ernie Els encourages you to learn the signs of autism at autismspeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Autism Speaks. It's time to listen. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, thanks for sticking with us. This is the second part of today's positive parenting show. According to an extensive new survey by the Pew Research Center, the Christian share of the U.S. population is declining 
while the number of U.S. adults who do not identify with any organized religion is growing at an unprecedented rate. Recent decades have seen many American families desert their churches and synagogues and abandon old traditions. But are they skipping out on something more than just tired rituals and ancient folklore? Well, in this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an award-winning journalist about exactly that. And she's going to talk to us about what is going on with this exodus from organized religion, what we're losing, and what that movement means for individuals and families as they search elsewhere for a sense of purpose and belonging. Religion gives people moral grounding, as well as a sense of identity and tight communal bonds. There are also a lot of studies that are showing that those who belong to a church, a synagogue, or other religious congregation are more likely to donate to charity and more likely to say that they feel a deeper sense of meaning and purpose. So how do non-religious people fill the need for community, moral guidance, ritual, and meaning without the one-stop shop of religion? We'll start talking about the many ways that non-religious Americans create their own traditions and communities in an increasingly secular age when positive parenting continues right after this. There once was a boy wizard whose name was Larry Smarter. Larry, why weren't you in Professor Dinky Doodle's mythical creature classification class? Well, I'm taking Algebra 2 in a foreign language. Oh, so you can talk to unicorns? <laughs> uh, exactly. Unless they're French. Larry wanted to go to college, so he visited knowhowtogo.org to find the classes he really needed. Getting into college doesn't happen magically. Learn more at knowhowtogo.org. Brought to you by the American Council on Education, Lumina Foundation for Education, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brought. My guest for this part of today's show is Catherine Osmond, who's the author of Grace Without God, The Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging in a Secular Age. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about the the change here. We used to be a fairly religious country. I mean, it, people talk about it as being a Christian country, and that's something that comes up with any kind of discussion about about religion or history or politics. It's, you know, there, there's a certain element of people who say this is a Christian country. But it's getting to be less and less so, and less and less religious overall, and the non-religiously affiliated of whatever religion they're in, they tend, they're growing. So what, what's happening with that? Yeah, that's true. So for decades, for as long as people studied religious affiliation, there was always a, a box you could check if you did not identify with any religion. It was called basically none of the none, above. Right. And so these people who check that box, so the shorthand for them is nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And nuns are people who are atheists, agnostic, spiritual, but not religious, people who just don't care. They don't go into a, a religious uh, institution. They don't affiliate with one. That number hovered at 7 or 8% for many decades and is now nearly 25%. And that has happened over the past 20, 30 years, uh, a gradual increase, and now something that seems like it's picking up and moving a little more quickly. You know, it's the kind of thing I remember seeing a lot on online dating profiles. You know, there's the spiritual but not religious category, which is it's kind of up there with the with the nun possibility. But there's a lot of people who affiliate that way. Yeah. Is that what what are they saying? Yeah. So it's interesting because I think nuns is sort of this umbrella term because p 
people haven't known where to, you know, we're such a religious nation. Our history is so, you know, so religion has been such a part of our country that we don't quite know what to make of non-religious. So they just kind of lump all the people who don't affiliate together in one group. And a huge part of that group is the spiritual but not religious. These are people who probably believe in God, um, but they may define God in a different way than they were taught, say, in Sunday school. Uh, and they don't affiliate with the institution. That's the main difference. These are people who don't want to be a part of an institutional practice of organized religion, mm -hmm. but they may describe themselves as religious. And I'm kind of wondering if you can talk about this. You've looked at these studies in a lot more detail than I have about the people who are now saying that they are nuns, N-O-N-E-S, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to having had a religion in a previous survey or the previous generations, w how that breaks down by religion. And, and I'm asking that because I, I'm Jewish, mm -hmm. uh, although I would have to say I'm kind of I'm more culturally than religiously oriented. The observance part is, is lagging mm -hmm. for me. And it seems to be easier for Jews to do that than Catholics or other uh, people of other religion, that there's a, a stronger cultural sense. Mm -hmm. So you can still say culturally, but not religiously. Right. Well, and in fact, that's my husband's story. So I was raised Presbyterian. My husband was raised Jewish, and he still calls himself Jewish, but he doesn't go to synagogue and he doesn't practice. And so in a way, um, he, you know, I think he would probably check none of the above if you were asked his religion, but if you're asked his culture, he's going to check Jewish for sure. Um, and so th that is different, and it is different for the different religious denominations. So um, there's, a, there's a different story within the each, each group, and I think that's definitely a Jewish story. I also think it's a Catholic story, to be honest. There's a lot of cultural Catholics who just can't bring themselves back into church anymore, especially after the the Catholic priest scandal and things like that. Sure. But they identify very strongly with their Catholic background and they feel a real sense of loss that they can't quite get themselves back into it. Also because of the the Catholic, um, you know, s stance on things like birth control and divorce and things like that. But these are people who feel culturally connected to that religion, but they don't practice it. So what is it that that they're running away from and what is it that they're running towards mm -hmm. when they're giving up religion in that way? So I think it's part of a wide-scale distrust of institutions, political and religious, and a lot of people no longer buy into the fact that there's this authority figure who has the direct line to God who can who can guide them. And and so people have found that that they want to go off on their own and kind of create their DIY, do-it-yourself spirituality. So I think it's a rejection of that idea that authority lies outside the self. And it's just an increase in their sort of individualistic age. As we modernize, more and more people start to see sort of, you know, the wizard behind the curtain and think, well, you know, if that's what's going on, you know, it, and also if religion is becoming more and more about politics, um, that's really not what I'm there for. I'm going to go figure it out on my own terms. Do they believe in a higher power? They well, just don't want to call it a god? Well, a lot of nuns do. Yeah, a lot of those spiritual not, but not religious people definitely do. But there are also um, growing numbers of atheists and agnostics in that group that really just God is not a part of the framework of how they think about the world. And they seek meaning um, in their human connections and in nature and on Earth. Now, do you th speaking of human connections, do you think that, that that's getting to be a problem, the lack of connection? I mean, it, in, in 
in conjunction with the rise in social media where people are spending less face time together. I mean, I think one, people would probably agree that one of the main things that religion, organized religion, has to offer is a building where people can get together and hang out and, mm-hmm. and do you know, building projects or charity projects or just talk to each other. Right. Uh, and and it, how, how is that being replaced? Well, so that's really one of the biggest losses people tell me that they feel is they lost that community. Even people who are atheists, they say, I really miss singing in the choir. <laughs> you know, they really miss going into a place and being with other people. Um, But they just can't bring themselves to do it anymore. It doesn't align with their beliefs and values. So what I did in my book was I went around the country and found people who are starting new secular communities. And these are everything from secular humanist meetings on Sundays um, that have the flavor of a religious service without the God. They have singing and they have... Uh, a, a talk, and they maybe have some kind of uh, very simple ritual, uh, and, and people really coming together. They might have lunch afterwards, um, or a, a coffee and cookies kind of a thing. Uh, I found a number of different places around the country that are doing this. I think these groups are trying to meet this new need that many people have for community beyond religion. And are they finding it? I mean, is that, is that something that's growing? It's, it's just beginning, but I, it is growing. Um, and we see a lot of some of the um, most sort of the best examples are on college campuses. So you see a lot of students forming secular community groups. A lot of what they do is try to get um, students together to do community service activities. That's something that religion has always been so good at. Uh, and now these other secular humanist communities, Sunday assemblies, um, and things that have been around for a while, like ethical culture, and even for some people, the Unitarian Church, there are these options um, that are growing and increasingly embracing families. So they're bringing in people that are multi-generation, and they're trying to have programs for um, sort of every age that you might bring into a, a group like that. Hmm. And, I mean, how, how are families responding to this? Because I, th- I still think that there there's in some way, and I'm sure this is in some way what people are rebelling against, mm-hmm. but it's also, I think, what people crave in a lot of ways is somebody to tell you how to run your life. Right. You know, we want to have the rules right. that this is okay and this is not okay. And it, it seems to be kind of a, a, a basic human need in a way. It's just boundaries. I mean, you talk about that as parents. Our kids need boundaries and, and, and everywhere. Right. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a struggle right now. I think one of the main struggles really for families is the time crunch. I think more and more people don't make time for this kind of work um, in terms of instilling values in your kids and really working with them to think about how they might help their community. Um, you know, in my experience, we're all driving around to different sports activities and extracurriculars and the kids have all this homework and and there's barely time to take a breath. And so some of the examples I found were really very individualistic. There's a mother in Minnesota who stops um, every Sunday. She gets her three kids and her husband together in their kitchen and they take an hour or two to talk about their values. They do a meditation exercise. They go out and plant things in the garden. And they're really, she's trying to bring sort of a, because she lives in a very rural area, she's trying to bring some of what she admired in her uh, Unitarian Universalist experience into her home because she can't find a church like that nearby. So I do think there is this increase of DIY experience, but 
you know, the risk is you just won't do anything if you don't have someone egging you on and mm-hmm. you don't have a community to whom you're accountable. Talking with Catherine Osmond, who's the author of Grace Without God, The Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging in a Secular Age. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Catherine when we get into how religion is responding to all this. I'm Armin Brunt. You're listening to Positive Parenting. My name is Rachel, and in eight years, I'll be an alcoholic. Kids who drink before age 15 are five times more likely to have alcohol problems when they're adults. I'll start drinking in middle school, and I'll do some things I don't really want to do. So by the time my parents talk to me about it, alcohol won't be my only problem. So start talking before they start drinking. To learn more, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and this station. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Catherine Osmond, who's the author of Grace Without God, The Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging in a Secular Age. So just before the, the break, I just mentioned, I um, want to find out how religion is is fighting back. I mean, I know the Catholic Church has been in a, a real quandary here about what to do because they're just not getting the the flow of priests coming in and they're thinking about well are we going to allow them to get married or something like that i mean that may be a possibility but what's going on how are how are religions actually reaching out to try to bring people back yeah so i think this is a real tension in religions and the religions that we have today are finely evolved organisms, right? They really are sort of the ones that's they're the survival of the fittest. They have come through the millennia and are very, very good at what they do. But in our increasingly scientific and modern age, it's very challenging to bring people in if they don't necessarily believe the sacred text explaining how the world came to be and, and talking about God and people increasingly questioning that. Um, so I, you know, I think Pope Francis, it was a breath of fresh air for the Catholic Church. And I think people of all religions and no religion at all respect him for his, his desire to help people and get back to the, the true message of Christianity and try to get out of some of the politics of it. Um, but it hasn't translated into more people going back into the Catholic Church. No, there has not been a sort of a, a pope bump scene from <laughs> that um, experience. So I think it's a real challenge. And what I found most interesting was in more some of the more liberal-minded religious communities opening their doors to people who are not religious and really wanting to talk across the aisle about what what are what are you guys missing? What are we not providing? And and it's not to say that the nuns are going to suddenly go back into the church, but just to start these discussions and perhaps figure out a way to share that space. Um, I found a, a synagogue in Oregon that is home to a regular storytelling community event, which is completely secular, and it draws a huge crowd uh, four times a year. And these people come in and tell their stories, and the hope is that it engenders compassion within the community. When you see this neighbor later in the week, you'll you'll have a better understanding of who they are and, and, and where they come from. And the rabbi told me that a lot of his congregants go to these storytelling nights that he, he allows, you know, to happen at the synagogue. And, 
And a lot of the storytelling people are starting to say, hey, I, I kind of miss going to services. Maybe I should start going to synagogue again. And so there's this almost um, mm. this these places where people realize they're after the same thing. I feel like are there's a lot of possibility there. Now, how are kids dealing with this? Because you talked about 25% roughly are, are the nuns. And it probably is a little bit more than that. People feel pressure to answer one way or the other, so they really are in the nun category, but they're putting something down because their parents, who knows, looking down from heaven would say, you know, that there, there's there's pressure on people to, to do things that way. So let's call it, call it a third. But you still have two-thirds that are religious in some way. And I remember growing up hearing from neighbors down the street that I was going straight to hell for whatever, you know. And there there are things, and that was just for being a different religion. And I know there's, there, there's some overt hostility from some religions, not towards other religions, but towards atheism or agnosticism. This is definitely true. And I found um, some of the what's great about these secular humanist communities and non-religious parenting groups that I spoke with is it provides a safe space for their kids. Because a lot of people told me, especially in very conservative regions, that their children were told they were going to hell um, because they didn't believe in God. And so th- that's some of the reason that these groups are so necessary and so important for people. You know, and I think it's a it's a matter of figuring out a way to teach religion religious literacy as, as a cultural study and to teach our kids um, what religion is, what it means to people, and also what atheism is and what it means to people who don't necessarily believe. Uh, we had an a, experience a couple of years ago where our youngest daughter and I were at the garden store. I was buying a Christmas wreath for our front door, and she saw an angel statue with her hands in prayer kneeling. And she said, look, Mama, this girl is doing yoga. <laughs> and uh, I said, no, no, honey, that's not, not a girl doing yoga. That's an angel. And she said, what's an angel? And I realized my kids knew nothing nothing about religion, not even an angel. And so it's been a real, I think it's important, even for us non-religious parents, to teach our kids what religion is and what it means to people. And I hope religious parents could also be open-minded enough to teach their kids that, you know, not everyone believes what we believe, and that's okay. Well, this whole you're going to hell thing, I think that a response could be, well, that's exactly why I'm not in here anymore is right. because of this this lack of of ability to acknowledge that other people have different views and and so many so many religions talk about tolerance right. but don't necessarily practice it when it comes down to it. Yeah, and that's such a big deal and a lot of people say the judgment was what turned them off. They just couldn't this sort of, you know, tribalism and this feeling that if you're not with us you're against us. Um is what's turning people away from religion. And so what I was, you know, what I'm hopeful about is these places where that's not the case and there's sort of more progressive religious people who are really curious and not judging the nuns, but saying, okay, we get it. Um, let's talk. Let's let's um, not fight each other because this is a reality now. Where do you think we go from here? Does it get better? Does it kind of plateau here at about 25%? You know, I, um, I'm i not 
I'm not sure about that. I mean, part of it is that the non-religious do not procreate as the, at the same rate as the religious. So it's hard to say how much growth you can have if if you're not, um, you know, having tons and tons of kids and not raising them with religion. It is true that the millennials are 35% non-religious, and that's a huge amount. And once it does start to taper off like this, um, it's, it's harder to gain traction. Like, these are kids who are not going to pass religion on because they don't have anything to pass on. And so some recent research shows that we are, in fact, secularizing in the way some European countries have. And it's just um, we're following the same pattern. We maybe are just doing it on a different time scale. Do you think that that hurts the culture overall to have less of of an identity? No, because I don't think it's less of an identity. I think it's a different identity. I think I'm raising my kids to have a very open-minded, secular identity, and they have kids of all faiths. They have Mormon friends. They have um, Muslim friends. They have Catholic friends in their classes, and they know that we're raising them without religion, and, and that's their identity, and their identity is about you know strong secular humanist values, and I think... Um, if more and more people can embrace that, I think parents need to articulate those values to their kids and can, instead of thinking, well, religion owns that domain, um, then I think that there is a sense of strong identity that you can raise your kids with. And how's it going to go with your kids as they, they move out into the world and your daughter's not going to be quite not quite so naive? She's discovering things and learning things and she's... You know, you can't turn on the TV without hearing about religions and, you know, what's going on with them. Well, so we have three kids and our other daughter, who's now 10, said to me the other day, well, I'm part Jewish, part Christian and part gymnastics. So I think her (laughs) answer is that she's a little bit of what she came from and a little bit of what she's creating for herself. And I think that's perfect. I think it is. That's a good thing. And. Are you doing more research on this? Are you through with this particular topic, or are you going to go back and revisit it at some point? Well, uh, right now I'm doing a lot of events, including some in the area, but um, I will probably keep studying this. It's endlessly fascinating. And as I go around and talk about this book, people share with me more stories, um, not only of their religious loss, but of what they've done instead. And it's it's pretty incredible. There is this sort of phenomenon going on across the country in all areas of the country and everyone has a story about this to share it's been amazing you know we only have just a couple seconds but you mentioned the values of secular humanism can you sum those up in 30 seconds oh sure um so uh using science and reason um as a way to explain the world uh caring about others and realizing that it's what we've got here on earth and not in um an afterlife uh that really matters and so you got to sort of grab the bull by the horns here and now. Catherine Osmond is the author of Grace Without God, The Search for Meaning, Purpose, and Belonging in a Secular Age. Catherine, thanks for coming in. Great to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.